The Gist is sponsored by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GIST. That's harrys.com and the promo code GIST. It's Thursday, August 13th, 2015. From Slate, it's the GIST. I'm Mike Pesca. So a day ago, I saw an item about TV news, and I thought it was ripe fodder. Fodder for GIST jesting. Here it is, as reported by the AV Club, Michael Bolton is developing a modern-day threes company for ABC, which to me seemed perfect, because isn't Michael Bolton's whole career based on a misunderstanding? But then I saw in the New York Times, well covered in the New York Times, in fact, in a lot of other places, a different TV story. And I said, no, I got to go with this. I got to go with the coverage of the fact that Seth Meyers is no longer standing to deliver the monologue. He's going to sit. Man to sit in chair. Details to come. Extra, extra. Engaging in humor from a seated position. This is 2015. There is a teenage girl disrupting the entire realm of video entertainment with a makeup channel on YouTube. A dozen bros who live in a house in San Rosita have 23 million Vine followers. And we're covering Seth Meyers sitting down as if it's the Garfield assassination. This is the host of NBC's 1230 in the morning show. And I just want you to know, I don't want a little credit. I did go with the Garfield assassination. Didn't want to overstate the case with Lincoln or Kennedy. But still, I thought that that was maybe giving a little too much attention to the development of sitting. And then I thought maybe I'd counter, I'd squat during the spiel. I could do a, a spiel whilst engaged in deep knee bends. But then I saw the TV news story I had to do. It just plopped in my lap. It cozied up to me. And it demanded that I stroke its furry belly. Sesame Street is moving to HBO. Yeah, it's going to be on PBS too, but it's going to HBO, and you know what that means. Elmo's going to be naked. Wait, hold it. Hold it for the spiel. Going to put all that aside. We'll come back to it in the spiel. And on today's show, coming up, we're going to talk about the bamboo ceiling, which is the idea that Asian Americans are getting a little screwed when it comes to getting into college. But first, Adam Davidson is here. He's going to talk about better ways to define poverty. So poverty, everyone's against it, and productivity, everyone's for it. But you know what? What is it? The very definitions of these words are often elided when jumping into the argument about what we or politicians should do economically. This came up a couple times. We quoted on this show Rick Perry talking about Texas's success with African Americans as related to the supplemental poverty line. Joining me now is Adam Davidson. Adam is the founder of NPR's Planet Money. He writes about economics issues for the New York Times magazine. He knows the definitions. Hey, Adam. Hey, Mike. I want to talk about supplemental poverty because before Rick Perry started talking about it, I wasn't aware of that phrase or what that was. And I think it is relatively new. Can you tell us what the idea is behind it? So poverty, you hear like the poverty line. A family of four is above the poverty line if they're here and below it if they're there. And a lot of government activity is based on this poverty line. The Obamacare is based on the poverty line. There's so many 
ways in which if you're below the poverty line, you get certain benefits. If you're mm-hmm. above the poverty line, you don't get those benefits. Right. Do so you qualify for what kind of housing, affordable housing, 80% of the poverty line, all that? Exactly. Turns out the poverty line is a very loose number. Nobody had really come up with a number. What is poverty? And so in 1963, 1964, it's the early days of the ambition for a war on poverty. You know, Robert Kennedy famously had this tour of Appalachia and, and other parts of the South and America kind of discovered for, shockingly, the first time that, wow, there are really poor people in America. And so th- this young social scientist, Molly Orshansky, came up with this measure. It was a very rough measure. I actually, an, an old girlfriend of mine interviewed Molly Orshansky about 15 years ago, and Molly Orshansky, you know, almost 40 years after her number became embedded in our government, said, it was sort of a wild stab in the dark. They should not have kept using it for this long. It wasn't a very good number. Basically, she looked at some U.S. Department of Agriculture statistics for how much food cost in America. She picked the smallest amount of food you could get to sort of survive as a family. And she multiplied it by three and said, well, if you're only making three times the minimum food requirement, then you're poor. Right. It so turned, it's basically saying not starving, but not much better. Not starving, but not much better. Yeah. And that's roughly assuming that all your other expenses can be paid by the uh, two thirds of your income that's left over after you don't starve. Right. Yeah. And, and that's fine. It's 1963. Let's not criticize her for that. But right. But it so doesn't seem to capture poverty too it well. It doesn't capture poverty too well. It does a very poor job of... Differences, you know, in rural parts of America, for example, housing costs are probably a lot cheaper, but transportation costs to get to your job, to get your kids to school might be a lot higher, Mm -hmm. depending on food prices might be very different in parts of the country. Uh, Certainly even, you know, in New York City, food prices vary neighborhood to neighborhood. And famously, there are these food deserts where it's extremely difficult and therefore costly in time, if not money, to find fresh fruits and vegetables, things like that. So basically, it's been an open secret and open knowledge since about 1964 that our poverty measure is pretty bad. So a couple things. One, I understand why it's inaccurate. It is a good thing to have some measure that we can compare year after year. So maybe it was bad in 63, but in 83, it's still the same measure. In 2003, it's still the same measure, even though let's complicate that, that one of the things that's gotten really inexpensive is food of all the things. So that complicates things. But is there an agreed upon better way to measure it? There are measures that are seen as better. I mean, frankly, almost any modern measure would be seen as better. But there is general agreement that it is inherently a values question. It Mm -hmm. is not an objective economic question. There is no objective measure. Are you poor? Are you below the poverty line only if you have moments of deep hunger during your life? Are you below the poverty line if the options for your children are severely constrained? They can't go to a good school. They can't dream of going to college. Probably the most salient reason why we haven't changed the number is it's an incredibly fraught politics. So if you tighten the definition, you make it more stringent and fewer people qualify, you're transferring billions of dollars away from the poor and, you know, I guess back to the middle class or the rich. Well, one politician's going to come along and say, under my administration, 20 million people are no longer under the poverty line. <laughs> but is there really, economists say, actually, it's too loose a definition? Like, what we call poverty isn't really poverty? There's a That seems Scrooge-like. If you talk to global development economists... Oh, this is, these they, are the people saying yeah. people who live on $3 a day. And these are generally definitions out of the OECD in Europe, the kind of global economic think tank for wealthy countries. The UN has numbers, the IMF and the World Bank have numbers. 
Roughly speaking, we talk about absolute poverty is below a dollar a day. Maybe a buck and a quarter a day is absolute poverty. Below $2 a day, you're, you're pretty poor. So in that context, there's almost nobody in America who is anywhere near absolute poverty. So, you know, we are an enormously rich country. I mean, I, I do remember coming back to New York from Haiti and realizing even the poorest person I have ever encountered in America will see a doctor at some point in their life. They yeah. will have attended a school. They, most of the people they know will know how to read and write. But it also gets to some real values questions. I mean, I think most of us would agree no child should go to bed hungry in America. So I think we could probably get a pretty large number of Americans who say, yes, if you're so poor that your children are going to bed hungry, that you're poor. But if your children are getting a basic caloric intake, but not a lot of caloric intake, if they don't have a lot of opportunity, but you have a large TV, these kinds of things come up. Right. And to me, they're kind of loathsome. I, I would tend to want to expand the definition of poverty in America. I think relative poverty, it should be appropriate that the poverty rate is much, much higher in a rich country like America than in a poor country like Haiti, obviously. So in 2010, the Census Bureau started uh, publishing statistics on the supplemental poverty line. What is, has that different from the old poverty line? The old poverty line was based on what we would call pre-tax and pre-transfer income. So whatever money you make without including government you know, food stamps, you know, housing assistance, that kind of thing. And the reason for that is that when economists think about an economy overall, mm -hmm. you think about it having productive sectors. So people earning money by being productive, businesses raising money by being productive, then the government taxes that money and then transfers some amount of that tax to other people. So Social Security would be a transfer payment where, you know, younger people are basically transferring money to the rich. Food stamps and other kind of welfare programs would be transfer programs. So if you're thinking about an individual who's poor in a country, from an economic standpoint, if you want to understand how is this economy functioning, you actually want to know, like, how many resources are those poor people able to productively create and consume on their own. That's a helpful thing yeah. to know. So you want to know before they receive anything, how well are they doing? But of course, other people say, that's all fine and good, but we also want to know if the government programs are helping and how much they're helping. So this was generally seen as a big issue. The Census Department put together a big committee that spent lots and lots of time interviewing lots and lots of experts. And they came up with this new statistic, the supplemental poverty measure, which measures after government help. How are people doing? And not surprisingly, that means, you know, people are generally doing better. Yes. But does that mean the economy is functioning better? Does that mean we're doing well by our poor? Frankly, for me, I like seeing both numbers. I think it's very helpful to see both numbers. I like a world where there are both numbers, but I would not choose any one number as the only number. So is there one statistic, a new statistic that cuts through this that you love or even a raft of statistics like the social progress index? Probably if you brought me back to life 100 years from now and said, Adam, this is a very weird thing. We spent a lot of money freezing you. We're yeah. bringing you back to life. And we're going to ask you one what, question. We're going to ask yeah. you one question. Like yeah. what one statistic do you want to know? I guess I would say, I, I mean, maybe productivity growth would be one of the, the first question. But I would want to know how much GDP had grown in the last hundred years and, and how that had been distributed. You wouldn't want to know, like, if Cookie wins on Empire? I don't watch Empire. Uh -huh. But still, I, I mean, might ask the culturally. question. I might ask the question. I would also want to know 
I mean, honestly, I, I would expect that I could guess, like, are we living in a post-apocalyptic nightmare based on productivity growth and the distribution of GDP? But if we thawed you out, we probably have enough resources to do that. Although maybe I'm like, only this tiny elite of super rich people, have, okay. and they, it amuses them to yeah. unfreeze finance reporters from 100 years ago. Sounds earlier. fun. Yeah. Unfrozen finance reporter Adam Davidson founded Planet Money. He now writes about economics issues for the New York Times Magazine. Talks to us. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Mike. And now a word from our sponsor, and it's a word that I was reading about in the Wall Street Journal. Well, I know it exists. I use Harry's razors, but they're talking about the math of razor blades. And it turns out all these old razor companies, I don't want to use any particular brand names. Let's just say they rhyme with Billette. So this Billette-type company is trying to compete with online razor blades, and the, the journal quotes a guy as saying, they were wonderful, but the problem was they were around $20 for a pack of four, and it's done in a week no matter what brand I use. So to combat this, you know what Billette is telling people? Just to use the razors more often. Therefore, they last longer. That, my friends, is not a solution. What is a solution? Harry's razors, especially the offer we're going to give you today. The starter set is just 15 bucks. It includes a razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or the foaming gel, which defies laws of physics by expanding way beyond what you think a gel should expand. Just a little dab, and you've got a face full of gel. Now, as an added bonus, you can get $5 off your first purchase with the code GIST. So if you use the code, you get an entire month's worth of savings for 10 bucks, and shipping is always free. Here's how to do it. Go to harrys.com now, $5 off if you type in the code GIST with your first purchase. That is H-A-R-R-Y-S.com and enter coupon code GIST at checkout for $5 off the starter set and start shaving smarter today. The bamboo ceiling, it's a phrase to describe the limitations on Asian Americans who wish to aspire. The phrase, wonderfully evocative as it is, was brought to my attention recently when I was reading about a suit brought against Harvard for failing to admit an adequate number of Asian American applicants, the suit's proponents allege. Now, the proponents aren't themselves Asian Americans. The suit was brought by a white man who has a long history of challenging racial preferences in higher education. And that's interesting. A 2009 study that was put out by Princeton researchers indicated that the average SAT score on verbal and math of Asian students at elite universities was 1460, white students 1320, Hispanic students 1190, black students 1010. And here's another number. Although Asian Americans are 4.8% of the population, they are 30% of National Merit Scholarship finalists and about 21% of Harvard's undergraduate class. Joining me now is Jennifer Lee. She's the author of The Asian American Achievement Paradox, and she's a professor of sociology at the University of California, Irvine. Hello, Professor Lee. Hello, it's nice to be here. So as I read the statistics, they seem stark, and yet they're all based on SAT score. Is that telling? I'm so glad you asked that question, because I think people are trying to figure out what makes a strong applicant. And test scores themselves are not predictive. Asian Americans 
are more likely to engage in supplementary courses to boost their PSAT and their SAT scores. So they have a number of tutoring services, SAT prep courses that are available in their ethnic communities. And so the boost in the score, it's not, I'm not trying to discount their high scores because they work really hard to achieve those high scores, but they have opportunities available to them that other ethnic minority groups do not have. But do you think that there is any real evidence that Harvard is saying, look, we just can't have our school be 40% Asian, even if, you know, if we were totally race blind, it would be 40% Asian. Is there any evidence of that? There is no evidence of that. And I think they're suing not only Harvard, but UNC Chapel Hill. And they've clearly picked one of the top private universities and one of the top public universities to make their lawsuit highly visible, not only nationally, but internationally. I would say that there are a number of factors that universities consider in admitting students. And I think it's easy, especially if you've been rejected at Harvard and you feel like you belong there or your parents feel like you belong there, to think of something about your application that were different, you would have been admitted. But they take a very holistic approach to admissions. And so you get a number of boosts. If you're a legacy, you get a boost. Now, is that fair? If you're an athlete or you come from a part of the country in which there are few, few students and few student applicants, you get a boost. If you're a first generation in your family to go to college, you get a boost. So there are a number of different boosts you get. Race is only one and a very small component of the admissions decisions in places like Harvard and elsewhere. By the way, what is the Asian American Achievement Paradox? There are several. One of them is what I mentioned, that Asian Americans, they tend to have the highest educational outcomes, yet in our study, they felt the least successful. So they may have achieved high levels of education, much higher than Mexicans, for example. Yet Mexicans have made more intergenerational mobility, meaning they've attained much more education than their immigrant parents. So they measure their success intergenerationally, whereas Asian Americans measure their success against this incredibly high bar. And so there's a paradox about which group feels more successful. There's also a paradox between what we would call objective indicators of success and subjective indicators of success. I think many of us can think of really high-achieving people who graduated from the top schools, who work in elite professions and own beautiful homes in great neighborhoods and don't feel successful. And we meet other people who have attained much more than their immigrant parents and feel enormously successful. So that's one of the paradoxes is that Asians are objectively more successful, but Mexicans feel subjectively more successful. I don't know what the best answer is, because on the one hand, and I've read uh, Jeb Rubenfeld and Amy Chua's book, they were in here talking to me, they talked about the triple package, which is the idea that you have to have a chip on your shoulder, you have to think that your ethnicity is uh, superior and yet has also been 
put down. So driven, being driven and maybe being driven by the idea of I got to do this or, you know, the only way to be happy is to have this high level of success. It's probably good for a society. It's good for the GDP. It might not be good for your personal happiness, but, you know, you'll actually achieve a lot if you're driven. On the other hand, if you're really complacent and just happy-go-lucky, you might not achieve anything, but there's got to be a medium between those two extremes. I would say there's nothing wrong with being driven, and I would say that the Mexican respondents in our study were extremely driven. What is missing in the triple package is the idea of starting points. Where do these groups start? Let me just give you an example. Chinese immigrants in the United States, 51% have a college degree or more, compared to only 4% of Chinese who don't immigrate. So they're 12 times more likely to have a college degree than their counterparts who don't immigrate to the United States. They're also more highly educated than the general U.S. population. So their children start off at a much more advantaged starting point than the children of Mexican immigrants. So Mexican immigrants have lower educational outcomes than the Chinese, but they're doubling the high school graduation rate of their parents. They're doubling the college graduation rates of their fathers and tripling that of their immigrant mothers. And so how can we expect them to achieve the same outcome as other groups starting so much further behind the starting line? Jennifer Lee is co-author of the Asian American Achievement Paradox and professor of sociology at the University of California, Irvine. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was fun. Calling all Slate fans, we're throwing a party to celebrate our first 10,000 Slate Plus members. You're helping support Slate, and we want to thank you with a members-only fiesta. You don't have to wear a members-only jacket. In fact, if you do, you can't come. All right, you can come, but you'll be corralled in a little area, and some mocking will ensue. Date, August 19th in New York or Washington for a celebratory cocktail and the chance to chat with your favorite Slatesters, the Slate Plus team, your fellow members. It is your chance to tell us what you think of Slate. But of course, we're there in person. So, you know, you're not, you can't be all unhinged like sometimes comment sections get. But you're Slate Plus members. You love us. We love you. This is our chance to say thanks. During the celebration, we're going to have giveaways. And that ticket, the ticket price includes one drink. I said a cocktail, right? Space is limited, so get your tickets now to secure your spot. Visit slate.com slash live. That's slate.com slash live. And now the spiel. Which one of these things is not like the other? Sesame Street has made a deal with HBO. The deal is brought to you by the letter S. Well, the letter S with a vertical line through it, so the dollar sign. But that's all right. It's not easy making green. Sesame Street is paid for. Their budget comes almost entirely from licensing, and licensing has dropped off precipitously now that DVDs don't sell like they used to. Why? Because of streaming. And HBO is very much in the streaming game. It's putting a lot of muscle behind its mobile app, HBO Go. So, the deal is, HBO pays for Sesame Street for five seasons. HBO gets them first on its pay channel, on its video streaming service. Nine months later, PBS gets them for free. The PBS stations, the member stations, aren't even going to have to pay for them. So, that makes it something like a win, 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 and another win for everyone trying to make a joke on Twitter. 
So here's how jokes work, or one way that jokes work. Drew Carey writes his jokes this way. He takes two disparate ideas and he makes columns. And he makes a column and he writes down words, everything related to one idea, like basketball, and then everything related to another idea, like babies. And if he sees an overlap, he knows it's time for a joke. I don't know, dribbling or something, comedy gold. This is how the Sesame Street meets HBO mashup works. It is better than the Grey Album by Danger Mouse. You take an HBO show, you add a Muppet, it's always hilarious. The new cast member on Girls, it's Abby Cadabby. Ernie and Bert on Looking. Ernie and Bert find a cute street kid. They debate whether to take him home, back to their tastefully appointed pied-a-terre in the Castro. Bert, I'm afraid he's going to get cold and lonely out here all by himself, Bert. And then he'll be sad, and I don't want him to be sad, Bert. Real-time Cookie Monster filling in for Bill Maher. New rule. Every food must taste like cookie. New, new rule. All government laws must also taste like cookie. And how about this? The latest visitor to move into town on True Blood. I love it. That was too easy. Oh, and then there's Game of Thrones. Oh my God, Game of Thrones. I am Oscar of the House Grouch, first of my name, Lord of the Seven Kingdoms and Protector of the Realm. You are nothing but the bastard son of Lord Snuffleupagus. You have no claim to the felt throne. Send a raven? Nah, send this guy. It's a great letter, huh, Burgatiers? Yeah. Okay, let's go to the mailbox and we'll mail it. The frog is green and full of banjos. In fact, Sesame Street, the real Sesame Street, has already done a Game of Thrones parodies. It was called Game of Chairs. It's about musical chairs. Like the real Game of Thrones, it had much too much nudity for my taste. But still, pretty funny. Now fetch me a cushion for my royal bottom. This chair is not comfy at all. Yes, your fuzzy grace. And bring a sweater? I think winter is coming. Wow. A show for three-year-olds beat us all to the punchline, folks. There's one aspect of the PBS-HBO deal that isn't a win-win-win-win. Yesterday, Sesame Street announced that all their episodes will go from being an hour long to a half hour long. Now that sad, quiet whimper you heard was the last dying breath of the national attention span. But actually, as a parent, an hour-long Sesame Street, it's just too long anyway. What with the Elmo and the cartoon and the celebrity guest who's always feist, it seems, and Maria and Gordon's classically unresolved sexual tension, it's too long for a three-year-old to be watching TV an hour is. So a half hour is fine. So they get to Q or R in the alphabet, and then they have to stop there. That's fine. Kids in the future could just Google what comes after Q and R. You can't Yahoo what comes after Q and R, but I think that's by design. The thing I wanted to draw your attention to in this announcement was as follows. HBO today is boasting that it will produce 35 new Sesame Street episodes a year, up from the 18 it now produces. But wait, remember what I said one paragraph ago when I said that the show is going from an hour to a half hour? So they're producing 35 half-hour episodes instead of 18 hour-long episodes. Now, kids, how much of an hour is a half hour? You said half. Way to go. You're right. Actually, that thing where you pause for an answer, that's more of a Dora the Explorer trope, and I think it's creepy. This is a fine deal for Sesame Street and HBO. Just don't try to pull the felt over our eyes. The street's keeping it real, but we are not getting twice as much street. They're just stepping on the product to up the street value of the street. That's all that's happening. And that is okay. 
Just don't try to play me. I grew up watching Sesame Street. I can count. One, two, three, four, five, six, six dogs. And that's it for today's program. Andrea Salenzi produced the show, and she does it while her arms are akimbo. Laura Mayer edited today's show. She did it in between a series of vigorous Hiawatha thrusts. Andy Bowers is the executive producer. That is his position, as is supine. The gist, we were down, oh yes, but then we engaged in a nip-up. You know the nip-up, also known as the rising handspring, the kick-up, the Chinese get-up, the kick-to-stand, the flip-up, the carp skip-up. It begins with the performer rolling back onto the shoulders while drawing both legs towards the chest. The legs are rapidly thrust away from the body, trunk, and floor while simultaneously pushing away from the floor with hands if used. Or in audio form. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 